Welcome to the International Association of Business Communicators Amina Region podcast. This is Monique Zipnik. Today I'm speaking with Gloria Walker, who is not only a professor of practice at Holt International Business School and associate lecturer at the London College of Communication, but she is also a strategic communications consultant and owner glorious position of one foot in academia and teaching and the other one in the practicalities of clients, business and real world work. I've been wanting to have Gloria on our podcast for a few years now, ever since I started on the IABC Amina board and she hosted our inclusion webinar back in 2020. And Gloria's been our IABC Amina treasurer for a number of years And not only does she have so much industry context, but I've never known anyone to have a seemingly endless stack of internal communication books hidden behind her. So welcome, Gloria, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm really looking forward to our free-flowing conversation that will be touching on the direction of our profession, what students are learning, and where we should be focusing on to build our skills and what challenges lie ahead. Hi, Monique. It's nice to be here. So would you like to share with us a little bit about yourself and how you got into comms and your journey and, of course, what is entrepreneurial marketing? So many questions. Um, My undergraduate degree is in public relations, Mm -hmm. and I didn't have any idea what that was until what I was previously majoring in. We had to take a class in PR. So I took it in summer school. And... um, we had such a good time and we were dealing with, you know, ways that we could use communication to solve problems and how we would then, you know, once we got to the solution, what we wanted to achieve, then the various tactics that we could employ to do that. The man who ran the program had worked in a number, General Electric, IBM, a lot of big corporations. And it was an interesting combination of business and creativity that I thought was, you know, I said, oh, this is pretty good. And I got an A in the class. And I thought, oh, I can do this. So went back, changed my major again. It's like for the third time. And basically took six journalism classes at a time to get, because you had to petition the J school to get in and all this stuff anyway. And it was a really interesting way to do it because I was taking like news writing, advertising, typography, research, so many different things. And I could see how they all sort of connected, even though from a career perspective, they were different. And some of the you know ways of, of doing things were different. It was, you could see the, the ways they combined, you know, how you use them to accomplish, you know, more of a strategic outcome. So anyway, did that, finished my degree, had no idea what I was supposed to go do. So I thought graduate school, So my dad was going to get trans. We'd been transferred up from Texas to Pennsylvania for a couple of years. I knew they were going back. So for grad school, I picked University of Texas at Austin and um, got on a plane, went to UT and did my master's, which I've always said to people, getting, doing my undergraduate degree taught me how to do things. Getting my master's helped me understand why we did what we did and um, really, really enjoyed that. So finished that up, went to work, and, you know, that was that. I was doing fine, had, a, you know, some corporate jobs, and I was in Dallas working for a, one of the, America's biggest companies at the time and met this guy who happened to be from London. And um, I got married and moved. 
I said it was another of those, gee, I've never been there, but hey, what the heck, let's just go do it. So I moved over here and was doing the rounds to, you know, try and find a job. And somebody said to me, one of the early encounters that I had, this man said to me, he said, you're the first trained PR person I've ever met. And I kind of looked at him like, well, how do people get into PR here? And he said, oh, we're all former journalists. So people had been financial journalists, property journalists, tech journalists, all sorts of things. And they set up PR companies. And it was in the late 80s. Everything was booming. A lot of the companies went public and then, of course, fell apart and whatever. But it was really interesting because in the States, you're taught to be a generalist, you know, that you have a skill set that you can apply in any kind of setting. Over here, the market was so siloed. So people worked in financial PR or tech PR or consumer PR or luxury PR or property PR, health PR. There wasn't, there was very little, you know, across the board. Everybody had a specialization, which for me as a generalist was an interesting way of, of looking at things. It's still pretty fragmented now. So I worked in financial PR and then I went um, in-house and that was fine. Did internal comms, then picked up the wider comms brief for the business. And then my managing director came in and he said, um, the UK government is having a review of company car tax. We were in the automotive sector. He said, um, fix it. That was my brief, fix it. So I became a lobbyist. And I ran it basically as an issues management program. We accomplished what we set out to accomplish. We were quite successful. And then I got moved up to the PLC and they said, well, if this worked that well here, we need to do more of this. So instead of focusing so much on Whitehall and Westminster, I focused on Brussels. So I was in and out of uh, the commission, the European Parliament for about seven years, working on a number of different projects there. It was great fun. But again, you know, working with specialized consultants, we had a couple of consultancies that we used. But again, you know, it's like, oh, I have to go find somebody else now because public affairs is a different role. I'm like, fine. So we got taken over by another company. Everybody lost their jobs. And I started working for myself. Practically every role I had, even the in-house position that I found, came through people I knew in IABC because I was quite active in the UK chapter. And that continued. So I would get, you know, somebody would call and say, hey, I've got a project. Can you come out here? So one was like six months and then it was 10 months. And then it was something that ran into like four years. And then somebody I knew said, hey, I want you to come out to Thailand and run my the media department here at this university that we've got. And I'm like, okay. So I moved to Thailand for two years, ran a media department, because by that point I was still teaching. I'd been an adjunct and, and taught classes for a long time, various places. And um, I thought, well, maybe this would be kind of interesting. So I thought about, you know, started working on a PhD and then you start teaching and then that leads to this and that. And I got into HALT because somebody I knew in IABC had done a class for them and said, hey, you'd be really good at this. And that was 12 years ago. So I'm still doing classes there. LCC. So it's like the networking works. So that's sort of, you know, how I got to where I am now, which is more 
I pretty much teach almost on a full-time basis, but I just picked up a client in the voluntary sector that I'm going to do some work with on a pro bono basis, but I'm doing some research for them, which is kind of my all-time favorite thing to do. So it's, uh, that's going to be fun. From, from your very extensive experience and background, Gloria, I'm picking up two key things. One is the fact that you've had the, I guess, privilege of having a really multifaceted education. So that real option of learning everything from typography to different types of journalism really gave you that strong basis and foundation to build on and learn the different parts of the communications craft. But the other thing that's coming through to me is the value of the network in opening doors and giving opportunities. But I'm curious, what interests you the most at the moment? You've always got some project on the go. Uh, For example, at the other week at our board meeting, you mentioned sonic branding. Oh, yes. What? On sonic branding. I was. I had this uh, a student at Halt who was in my class a year or so ago. He's from India, a little bit older. He's in his mid twenties. Okay, which is not our typical age range. But anyway, I was talking to him after class about some things that he was working on, and he started talking about this this concept. And I said, "What are you talking about?" And he said, "Well, it's using sound as part of your branding." And I said, "Really?" So the more we talked about this, you know, the ringtone on your phone is part of sonic branding, unless you've changed it. If you see um, Intel, you ever see anything with Intel, you get that tone, that little musical, Mm -hmm. okay, that we immediately know it's Intel, even if we don't see the, the brand. And a lot of companies have used sound as part of their brand. It's using music. It's using tones, that we then immediately identify with that brand. Apple does it. A lot of companies do it. In some cases, they create, you know, like a whole soundtrack sort of thing that we immediately respond to. Coca-Cola, God was, I can't remember how far back it goes. It goes back a long way. Did a song, I want, I'd like to teach the world to sing. Everybody in the world knew that song and they knew it was Coca-Cola. It even became a top 40 hit because some group, you know, recorded it. And it really got me thinking about how we can get a brand to identify with more of our senses. And this is something I'm really interested in relation to immersive communication and the technology that's available, because if you think about straight comms or straight PR, it's generally written or a video and quite often or photographs, images, when you sort of like look on, on the internet, on various news sites or whatever you might be scrolling for. But it's very seldom that there's just conscious use of sound in a campaign unless you're talking with the more subliminal or the more sophisticated campaign creators. And then, as you said, Coca-Cola with the sound even of the bottle opening, it's on another level. It's Schweppes. You know, they have that sound that we immediately identify with Schweppes. That is sonic branding. And he, he has a company in India And they work for a wide range of clients on, you know, taking the brief and then helping them develop a sound, a tone, a few notes. If you really think about it, if you look at advertising, how many top 40 songs are used by car companies, by drinks companies, by fashion companies, because we hear as well as see. And it's, it, to me, it was just like, Amazing. So I had him speak to my class last term. I had him back in a a week or so ago 
to talk to my entrepreneurial marketing class because these are people who are starting businesses, who are thinking about what does that brand look like? What does that brand feel like? What does that brand sound like? And they stay really busy. And there are apparently huge agencies. He said there's about, I think he said 300, about 300 agencies around the world that deal with this. Now, that's a very small cohort compared to the thousands of advertising agencies, PR agencies, creative houses, and all the rest of it. But it's an area that, from a PR perspective, we really haven't thought about too much. But it does, when we look at, you know, the way that consumers experience a brand, you know, here's another part of that that creates more opportunity for that brand recognition. So it's, you know, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And also the connection. And I'm not missing the irony of the fact that we're we're talking on the IABC Amina podcast, which is obviously audio as well. So thank you to our listeners who are joining us. A, a core part of your work is the lecturing and the teaching at the moment, as you said, Gloria. I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more about the generation who are stepping into our profession? As you said, you're working with the younger cohort. What is the future bringing? How are they different? I think they're Generation Alpha? Well, I'm still kind of generations with Generation Z. It did strike me because I wondered where they were going to go after Generation Z. And now they're, apparently they're going through the Greek alphabet. So they have to start over. I think we're just beginning to see come into the um, higher education area. But what I've observed over the last several years with most of the students, they have a very short attention span. They are all about doing. We do an exercise to look at learning styles, and the large majority of them are kinesthetic learners. They need to do something. This is how they take things in. If you ask them to read something, they're not going to do it. Some of them will, but the bulk of them won't. And it really changes what you do in the classroom. I did a session a few weeks ago on the future of work. A lot of the, the management consultancies have done some research onto this. You know, what do we think it's going to be like? And one of the things that was mentioned, of course, you know, the obvious is the impact of AI, which brings into, you know, a whole other set of, of issues. But the other thing was the skills that are needed. And a lot of that is around communication skills. You have to be able to tell your story in a convincing manner. You can't just stand there, you know. But a lot of it is also about interpersonal skills. How well can you communicate with people, verbally and non-verbally? You know, how do you read a room? We had a lady who used to speak at IABC meetings, and her whole area is non-verbals. You know, how to spot liars at work was fascinating. You know, what are you saying when you're not saying anything is so important. And there's a, a premium being placed on those skills. How effective are you as a team member? You know, how well can you work with other people from a variety of cultures? Because people from different cultures have different perspectives on working, on timekeeping, on deadlines, on sharing, on, on you know, cooperation, collaboration. And we spend quite a bit of time at the business school looking at some of these issues. Uh, but the research, I want to say it was from the OECD last year, was really interesting to see, you know, this is what you're going to have to be able to do. Now, that is beyond some of the communications areas that we work in. But it, I think it gives us a bit of um, a leg up, so to speak, because 
basically communications practitioners are generally pretty good at communicating, personal communication, working with, you know, knowing what questions to ask, this sort of thing. But that is, is just going to be so incredibly important because they can teach you to do things the way they want you to do them. So the expert knowledge is important having the background. But uh, another example, I'm working on a providing support to one of our finance classes. And what they want me to focus on is essentially financial communication. How do, you know, how do business people prepare to communicate financial performance? Well, you've got to have, you know, how do you put a press release together? What about your presentation? What messaging is important? So where I thought I was going to have to deal with stuff I knew nothing about, I'm now basically going to be talking about the same stuff I always talk about. But again, it's making business people aware and helping them develop skills so that they can do this. Uh, Gloria, just going back to something that you said earlier, really struck out that you had to change the way that you, in the classroom, that things were taught to better accommodate the needs of the new generation. How do you think that translates into, say, managers taking on these new employees into the workforce? Do you have any tips for them? One of the things, because I gave some thought to that and I made some notes, they need to have things to do. They need to be involved. They will ask a lot of questions. So you need to be very clear. You can't assume that they're immediately going to understand what you want them to do, okay? They will want to, to talk about it, to be clear about it. But they also want to be involved. They want to understand, you know, why are you doing this? Why is this important? Why this approach as opposed to that approach? So I find that, that my top students are wonderfully curious about, you know, the background. They just don't take things at a, you know, go do this. Well, why? why? Why do you do it that way as opposed to this way? They may also come up with different solutions. You know, I think each generation has sort of their default setting. You know, this is how we do things. Their default setting is to want to understand, you know, want to be involved. Um, I think that can only be a good thing, though, Gloria, because uh, in my opinion, in one of the, the best skills or traits that I, I look for in a hire is curiosity because that means that people, if they're asking questions, if if they're trying to find out why, then they'll they'll keep learning. It's the people who don't question that don't raise the red flag when they need to with the senior leader when something's not right. So I, I think that's a really good thing and I think that's really interesting that you're seeing those qualities come through. In terms of these new students, is there any advice or any tips that you routinely give that you would also like to share with, with our listeners? Mainly, it's about getting experience. And that's nothing new. And that is hard because a lot of times, especially when they're students, you know, how do you get experience? And a lot of our students are come from countries they can't work in the UK or very limited as to what they can do. But even working in a retail setting, any type of work experience where you have to interact with people, where you have to follow procedures, where you have to maybe do a, a, some things maybe you've never done before, but any type of experience is valuable. It doesn't necessarily need to be in your field. We encourage students, you know, take internships. I tell them to go volunteer their services. 
you know, the voluntary sector is a great place to learn how to do things because they don't have many resources. And a lot of times they are thrilled to have anybody come and, you know, help them improve their comms or provide some support. So whether it's paid work or not, gaining experience is so incredibly important. And most of the students who do that are generally the ones who get jobs faster, even if it's not necessarily experience in what they're applying for, they still have work experience. They still know to show up on time to, you know, put in a day's work. So that's, you know, something we, we encourage them to get work experience. And also keep up because there's so much new coming out all the time, you know, in the comms field and in whatever field you're working in. Yeah, we have basic theories and procedures and ways of working that are important for us, but there's also new things coming out all the time that are going to have an impact, direct or indirect. So stay curious, keep learning, but get that experience and then continue to use and contribute. If you have an idea, put it out there. Don't sit back and wait for somebody to, you know, go do this, go do that. It, they don't work that way. They want to be more involved, more interactive, more participatory in, in the work that they do. Gloria, something, I, I mean, you and I are passionate about many things, but we are also really, we both love our comms strategy. And one of the discussions we were having before was about the difference between tactical and strategic communications. And I wanted to have a little bit of a chat with you about why strategy matters in your opinion and experience and also why is strategy a bit of a dirty word sometimes in the business world? I don't get it. Strategy is, there's um, an illustration in Alice in Wonderland of the caterpillar and the caterpillar sitting there and Alice comes along and the caterpillar, you know, she's trying to figure out where she wants to go. And um, the caterpillar says, where, where do you want to go? And she said, well, I don't know. And she said, well, if that's the case, any road will get you there. And I always thought that was such a wonderful way of explaining strategy. Because if you don't know where you want to go, you can do anything. It won't matter. But if you have a focus, if you know where you want to take the organization, if you know what kind of outcome you want to occur because of the work that you're doing, that informs what we're going to do. Now, with my students, we talk a lot about strategy mm -hmm. and whether it's, you know, comm students or, or business students, because you have to understand where is the organization trying to go? What is that longer term perspective? And that means that, you know, you need to be listening to the senior leaders, the people who are driving the organization forward. Where are you trying to go? If that's the case, then we can tell that story in a number of different ways. But sometimes the, you know, where we want to go is um, people interpret it in different ways. So one of the challenges is, you know, being clear on what that vision looks like, that focus for the future looks like. And then understanding then who do we need to explain that to? Is it financial markets? Is it consumers? Is it volunteers, is it communities, all the different stakeholders. And we may have to tailor that message a bit for each one of them, but we have to be consistently talking about where the organization is going and how we contribute to the organization getting there. Social media doesn't apply everywhere to everybody. It seems to be the default setting 
you know, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. I'm like, well, okay, but is that relevant to your consumer? Oh, maybe not. So again, what, if we know that's where we want to go, what strategies do we need to employ to make that happen? And then we have all kinds of tools, all kinds of tactics that we can use. Back in the, ooh, I want to say in the 1980s or so, David Dozier, who I think was at the University of Southern California, maybe, um, did a lot of research onto communicators' roles. And basically, he divided us into two groups, strategists and tacticians. And the bulk of communications work is tactical. The people say, oh, you do this or you do that. You created, you know, whatever. And for a lot of people in comms, that's absolutely what they do. And that's fine. A lot of people are really focused much more on being a tactician. And that, there's a huge demand for that. But we also have to have people who can sit down with a client and say, okay, where do you want to go? And then say, okay, if that's where you want to go, and those are the stakeholders involved, those are the people we need to get this message to, these are the things we can do. And then we can work out the tactical implementation for that. But we have to bridge that gap. I've talked to so many clients that had the same conversation the other day. Where do you want to go? How do people perceive you? What do they think you are? What do you think you are? And then sometimes we find that gap, and that gap is the problem that we have to solve. And we have to think about that as a strategic issue. Because if we just start throwing tactics at it, we may not make any progress. You know, to me, strategy is, is the foundation of everything we do. And um, most business people, you know, that's what they like to talk about, senior people. What's our strategy? How are we going? What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? And that's, we really have to understand that if our communications are going to be effective. I think the biggest problem we have yeah. is that when you ask somebody, what is communication? How many different definitions do you get? Way too many. And that's the, that's the challenge that, that we have, you know, working in, in this particular field. PR, nobody talks, well, I shouldn't say nobody talks about PR, but PR to me, when I was in school, we were taught that PR was an umbrella term and everything else fell under that. When I moved over here, PR is essentially media relations. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of the world, that's what PR means. So we've had this change of focus to strategic communication, corporate communication, whatever it is. But when you ask people, my parents never knew what I did. They knew I did something and I got paid for it, but they never really understood what I did. And one of the biggest challenges we have in the field is that people go, oh, well, but anybody can communicate. We communicate all the time or anybody can write. Eh, maybe, maybe not. But again, it, it's kind of having clarity around what it is we do and what we offer to our employers, to, to clients, to uh, the people that we work with. And I saw a really interesting piece this morning. I think it was in PR News. And one of them was some research that had been done about, you know, communicators having access to senior management. And I can't. Let me see if I can find it exactly here because I've got something else up. Um, but it was like only about a third of practitioners, you know, communicators actually saw their senior people, which is sort of wow. a, hmm, well, there's an interesting little issue because we keep talking about, you know, the Holy Grail is um, being at the, the top table. And I thought, yeah, well, I, I kind of have a different view on that. But if you're not seeing What's these people... I just thought, God, there's such a huge gap there that's existed for a very long time because business people don't 
talk about, I mean, they talk about communications. God, there was something from McKinsey the other day all about the importance of communication. But, you know, businesses will hire management consultants to do what we can do. And it's, it's really frustrating because that has not changed in the very long time I've been in this field. And it's something that we just have to keep at it because we need to be contributing. And I think part of the problem is that they see us as tacticians. They say, uh-huh. oh, yeah, we need a speech. Go see those people. Oh, yeah, we need some social media. Or, oh, we need an ad campaign. They don't see the strategic value that we bring. So why do they not see the strategic part of it? I know this is an issue that we need to tackle. What do we need to be doing differently? Because essentially the senior leaders are the ones who are making strategic decisions. Then if they say, oh, we need an email or we need this or we need that, they're the ones who are making the decisions. We need to speak the language of business. Every company I've worked for or worked with I have spent time learning what we do. We have to understand what the organizations do and what some of the issues are if we're really going to be able to be effective, you know, to be considered. Um, I was at a brief, uh, an event in the city years ago when I worked for the automotive company. And uh, I was there with the finance director and he kept introducing me to people as the diesel expert, which I certainly was not, but I knew more than he did. Because I had to understand what the issues were. I had to understand the basics of what we did to be able to talk knowledgeably to parliamentarians, to civil servants, to analysts, to whomever it was that, you know, we had to influence. So I had, I've learned a lot about things that have very little to do with comms, but things that were very important for me to understand if I was going to be effective at the work I was doing. And I think too many times we don't necessarily use the right language. We don't necessarily ask the right questions because we're so focused on the comms that we don't see that wider context. So to me, if, if you know, we're, we're not bringing something to that conversation or if we're not even having the conversation, then we're just going to be seen as, oh, those are the people who will go make stuff. We're not going to be seen as strategic. Because we don't speak their language and we're not seen as knowledgeable on their terms. It brings up another point that managers, business people, are quite numerate. Communicators, for the most part, are not. And this is one of the big issues when we start talking about measurement. Business measures everything. And if we can't come in with, you know, this is what we did and this was the outcome. This is how we've contributed to the bottom line, to sales, to whatever it is. And I know that. In fact, I saw a really interesting graphic the other day in something talking about the difference between like PR and marketing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Marketing people can go into a boardroom and say, okay, this is what we did. And this is what happened to sales, which is what happened to profit, which is what happens bottom line. I've seen very few communicators go into a meeting and talk about this is what happened to the bottom line because of what we did. And some of the stuff we do, yes, it is difficult to put a, a dollar value on it, but we can show that perhaps inquiries increased, employee turnover decreased, things that impact the bottom line. But it means that we have to be thinking slightly differently. We have to be putting measurement into what we do instead of just, oh, we got all these likes. So what? It's like moving down the, uh, I really like Jim McNamara's stakeholder engagement model that takes you through the actions the outcomes and then 
the business, long-term business impact. We have to make a business case for what we do. And I remember I had one, the automotive company, I was going in to present my budget for the year and I'd worked it all out, costed everything and went in, said, okay, this is what I would like to do. This is what it's going to cost. And they choked. Okay. Like, oh my God. And um, it was really funny because after I, I left the meeting, the finance director came out and he said, look, he said, we can't give you that much, but let's sit down and talk this through and let's see what we can do. Because I had the numbers there because they could see this is what I wanted to do. And this is what's going to cost. He said, this is important for us to do. Let's see how we can make it work. That was from the finance director. And, you know, we have to be able to put that uh, financial rigor into our proposals and plans, just like we do, you know, all of the other elements of it, because that gets their attention, because that's their language. That's what they look at. It's about not being scared of the, the numbers, particularly the, the dollar or euro, depends which uh, pound, which country you're in. And um, putting up boldly, because once you've got it down, then you can always negotiate or you can trim or you can split and come to a, a figure that, that works for everybody. So if you've got the numbers and, you know, you can show the outcome, you know, really demonstrate the, the actual business benefit of the work that we do, stand a much better chance of being asked to be more involved. Gloria, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. Did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share with our our listeners? Uh, no, I think these, um, you know, the podcast, being able to talk about communications issues, I think makes a big contribution to uh, the community. And I hope that people will take the time perhaps to give us some feedback on are there issues that they would like to hear more about or something they'd like to explore. You know, from the board's perspective, the podcasts are a very important part of the work that we do, not just across the region, but for the, you know, communications profession as a whole. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to participate. Thank you so much, Gloria, and a huge shout out to our global audience, because I do know that we have people in America, South America, even all across Europe, the Amina region, as well as Australia, APAC region and other areas of the world. It's um, I've been able to travel to a lot of those places and I have some really good friends across the IABC world. So if any of you are listening, get in touch. Shout out to Gloria and don't be scared to reach out on LinkedIn and connect or drop us an, an email or visit the website. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Gloria. Gloria.